Welcome back to the Task Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings on in the world of school psychology and other random musings. We have a very special episode today. I am your host, Chris Ponce, and with me as another host is Dr. Jim Baker. How are you doing? Hey, what's going on? Oh, I can't complain. How's your day been today? Um, I actually had something interesting happen to me. Um, not that every day isn't interesting, but um, I got stuck in an elevator. Is that not like the scariest thing in the world? <laughs> Have y'all had that happen to you before? Never, but I can't imagine because what if that phone doesn't work? What if it was the last time it was inspected? It was like three years ago because we work in schools and that's not a high priority, I guess. Well, here's the deal. The the phone didn't even work or how I anticipated it working. So um, I work in a nine floor high rise building. And so uh, we use the elevator pretty frequently. There's actually four um, in the building. And so it was going from one meeting down to another floor for another meeting. And we get in there and someone just starts pushing buttons. Oh, what floor do you need? What floor do you need? Just starts pushing these. And it reminded me of that the elf where he just like pushes all the buttons. <laughs> and I don't know if it just glitched or what happened, but literally the, the elevator just slowly started no, going down to the bottom. bottom. <laughs> it, we were all very confused. There's about six people. Uh, which made for very interesting conversations while we were getting rescued. So we didn't know what was going on. We kept pushing the button to open. Nothing was happening. So we called the little button and someone from Michigan answered. What? <laughs> like, I'm on my way. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> and she was like, why, you know, I don't, I don't know about a Michigan accent, but saying that, where are you? You're located in Texas. Well, uh, is anyone hurt or harmed? Well, she'll try to find the location so she could let this person and route this person. So, of course, we're like, well, we'll never get saved. And I turned to a couple of people that I've never met before. And I said, well, I mean, if we're here longer, then we might have to eat each other. Or (laughs) (laughs) And their faces were like, let me out. As you walk into the room with the same people for a mediation art, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, No, it was just funny. And then... um, the, the maintenance people came and was banging things outside and we saw little fingers come through the door and like slowly then go away and then come back in <laughs> and little way. Um, but yeah, about 30, 40 minutes later, we were rescued. And Ooh, that's since, a long time. That is a long our way. <laughs> that has never happened to me before though. So it was quite interesting. I think it was uh, a good reprieve from work just to God, get to yeah. know six complete strangers and have some (laughs) elevator conversation. So I actually have a couple questions, but first let's introduce that disembodied voice. That's Dr. Gilstrate who's joining us today. I I wasn't sure if I was supposed to comment or not. And you You can't just let the story go. (laughs) Um, I I, want to know what happened to the button pusher though. The person who was pushing all the buttons. Like, did y'all like take that person out? You had like hog time. So they were pushing more buttons. (laughs) No, but there was definite eyes gazed towards her throughout the duration of our stay in said elevator and it was just kind of like well we know it was you yeah so <laughs> you apologize voted off the island yeah. off the elevator island was, for sure was this first thing in the morning it was and i think all of us were very glad that we didn't have full bladders or no one was pregnant or, or end of day stuff epilepsy or anything yes we're very very fortunate and it was just good conversation <laughs> well i'm so glad you could join us today <laughs> jen thanks i made it out just for this it was like an escape room thank you so much just thank you so much uh speaking of that gil do you have a big fear like an actual physical like i'm death as a hawaiian it's embarrassing but i'm definitely afraid of like the ocean like the deep ocean mostly because i don't know what's in there i feel like we haven't discovered everything and i'm at a disadvantage no matter where i'm at in the water so whatever's coming after me i lose it I watched too many animal documentaries. There's too much scary crap down there. Like, I just can't deal with it. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely not a big fan of, of giant natural bodies of water that <laughs> are deep. I mean, like, you know, I'll go in the ocean, but not, not, <laughs> not very deep. Yeah. Probably, I mean, probably heights start to freak me out a little bit, but not enough to, you know, not get on a plane. Fair enough. Definitely yeah. don't like spiders. Definitely don't like spiders. So, yeah. Is that just a general yeah. fear? Does something happen? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, Let's little spiders are, are, are cool, but fears. I mean, I don't know. One time, one time we were hiking, and I was just—I mean, I, I was out in a natural. There's a national swamp, 
in South Carolina where mm-hmm. I was born and raised and stayed for like 28 years and went out there one time and there's just these giant spiders everywhere and we kept walking into them. Yeah. And, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it started, I mean, okay. I, I was getting freaked out. My buddy was like making fun of me the whole time. Because yeah. I, I like start, I, I grabbed a stick and started like walking. Like, y'all can't That's see you. me, but I'm like, like, I'm like waving the stick in front of me trying to get all the spider webs off. And ever since then, I'm like, mm, I don't yeah. know. I'm good. I mean, I'm past, right? Yeah, I still like hiking and going out in the woods, but you know, yeah. there are a lot of spider webs. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no great way to segue off of that, but we brought Gil yeah. on here for a very specific reason. He's an expert in many different things. He claims to just be two things based on our previous episode, but there's like a thousand things that Gil knows a lot of stuff about. One big thing, <laughs> don't do that face. I respect you so much and your giant brain and everything that you just know and the way that you're I, I able thought to you're gonna talk about my favorite bands. Like I know a lot about like no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Walking in spider web. Yeah. I, 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 I was a I, I was a Jimmy Buffett encyclopedia in middle school. So I was, I was a really big fan of Jimmy Buffett. I don't know. I don't know. I was probably looking up listening to my brother's cds so i learned the, all the bio the parent teacher conferences i don't know if he knows algebra but he knows a crap load about jimmy buffett so i don't know how that's yeah. gonna be applicable one day but he's the guy to go to that yeah that's the guy <laughs> he knows but so mint so you know motivational interviewing the world the concept i'm super not i don't know a lot about it let's be honest with you so gil break it down for us let's kind of have a conversation about it and kind of just kind of move into what it is why is it great? Why do you know so much about it? <laughs> cool. Well, so, I mean, really, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a brief conversational style or counseling approach. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it was originally developed in the early 80s to try to motivate people to reduce their substance use and alcohol use. And uh, from kind of once it was kind of developed, a lot of randomized control trials were done in the 80s and 90s, and they found, you know what, one to four sessions of motivational interviewing were as effective in reducing substance abuse and alcohol use as 12, 12 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy, and also like 12-step programs similar to AA, not actual AA, because you can't study AA and an RCT because it's yeah. anonymous, yeah. Um, right? So, um But from there, a lot of people started taking the theory of motivational interviewing, which is always kind of being built. They actually say they're kind of a theoretical Mm -hmm. um, and use the data to guide it. But people have applied a bunch of different theories and the approach and the technique um, to to motivate people to do um, really to change other behaviors and and make them more aligned with their their goals and and, and what they're trying to achieve. And we've seen. What's I think really important for school psychologists is that there's a lot of research on using it with parents in a consultative role and teachers. And in both of those aspects, it's being used to motivate parents and teachers typically to adopt positive behavioral support strategies um, to then work with kids in their classroom or kids that they have it in their home. Um, and actually, there's a good bit of research showing that motivating parents using MI and motivating parents and teachers to use these strategies. And again, not motivational interviewing, but behavioral strategies with their kids then actually leads to like decreases in disruptive behavior and um, a lot of externalizing behavioral problems. Um, Where I kind of came in though, was I was really interested in using it directly with middle school students and really adolescents and above to see if we can motivate students to um, basically start participating more in class, um, complete their homework assignments, and maybe change other behaviors that may be interfering with academic success. Um, and, and so in, I guess, I guess we actually started collecting the data and doing the study, I think like 2009, but we did a large, not a large, but we did a pilot randomized control trial with about 100 and three kids in it. Um, and with one semi-structured motivational interviewing session, we found that students who received that treatment had significantly higher post-treatment grades in comparison to a control group. And that was after controlling for their pre-treatment grades. Um, we then went on and replicated that 
And then my buddy, Dr. John, or Captain Dr. John Terry, he, he actually he was stationed out in San Antonio for, he did his internship in San Antonio oh. um, <laughs> with the Air Force. So he's a captain and, and a doctor now. Um, <laughs> at, at, at the time when he was actually doing his dissertation, he was like, you know, this one session is good, but, but two would be better. And he kind of like grunted and did like a Tim Allen home improvement bro, bro kind of grunt, like more is better. And, you know, we found, and we actually found uh, like adding a booster session had really significantly um, are, are, are resulted in more robust effects on grades and, and outperformed the one session, um, which was really interesting. And that's in one, like just one to two sessions um, talking with, kids and really helping them like set some goals um bottom line now and i'll say prior to that there had been it had been used with adolescents for substance abuse but not for academics and that was the first rct with middle school students um to to improve academic outcomes so why did you do it with middle younger kids would did you not think it was gonna be as effective or was that just the population you had Man, well, I, I've always been interested in middle school kids because middle school is tough. I mean, it, it, I mean, think, if y'all want to think back to middle school, but I mean, de- developmentally, we actually know that that transition period is actually really, really important and e- extremely predictive of later dropout in high school. Mm-hmm. And so if we can really help kids in that middle school time when they're really, I mean, they're figuring out themselves and they're, they're figuring out. A, I do have kind of autonomy and freedom. Obviously, they have figured that out in elementary school and stuff as well. And if you have a three-year-old yeah. or a four-year-old, you, 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 you might, they're figuring it out too. Yeah. Um, um, but they really can start thinking about like long-term goals. Um, and, and we've actually, we have a neurodevelopmental like conceptual paper. And we kind of hypothesize based on neurodevelopmental models um, and even like your Piaget models at probably around age 11, 12, 10 also, like kids probably have the cognitive um, skills they need to really be able to su- successfully engage in a motivational interview. Interesting. Yeah, no, a lot of, so at the end of every year with my fifth grade counseling kids, we start talking about the transition to middle school. What's it going to be like and things like that. And they usually start off saying, nah, I'm not worried about it. But once we talk about what life's going to be like with switching classes and all the personalities that are coming together, and at least the kids on my campuses are not going to like a small, small size middle school. It's a huge middle school. So there's like eight campuses that feed into the thing. And all three of my campuses happen to go to the same one. So just knowing the type of personalities are going to be in there, they start getting a little bit more anxious, but it's just kind of talking them through and just letting and setting those expectations going forward. But I see it in every single year, my fifth graders, just that nervousness going into that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, yeah. to, to, to move to go from maybe being like seeing one to two teachers, mm-hmm. besides like, like the PE coach and yeah. in art to then having to jump around to like six or seven classes. Yeah. Plus, like, I mean, you're like, your body's growing, you're it's weird. everything. Yeah, <laughs> weird. You're, 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 but I had an old professor though who pointed out that like in middle school, every kid's like worried about what the other kids think, mm-hmm. but every kid is worried about that. Yeah. And so they're over, they're really not thinking about any other kids. Yeah. They're really just thinking about themselves, <laughs> but out of fear of what other kids are thinking, which yeah. is kind of, kind of interesting. Middle school is so, rough. Let me tell you. <laughs> middle school is rough. Yeah. So that's why we chose, that's why we chose that, interesting. that, that population. That um, makes sense. That makes sense. So how does motivational interviewing work? Right. So consult, whatever you're working with teachers, parents, or the kid, it, do you approach it different ways? Cause obviously it's going to be like a big group compared to like an, an individual. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely, there's, there's a lot of different approaches and every, I will say every kind of addition of like kind of the main book or resource there, there's kind of the main resource most people go to is the Miller and Rolnick books, um, motivational, interviewing um like motivating people for change um but they come out with different editions and every edition actually like has reframed it i mean dating back from the 90s have really reframed how to go about using motivational interviewing but at the heart of that reframing and typically 
when they do change how they're talking about it, it's based on what the research is showing because we we're interested in mechanisms. What, what you're saying, how does it work? Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there are a lot of different components, but at the heart of it is it is evoking change talk and then responding appropriately to change talk. And what change talk is, is basically any speech utterance, any phrase, anything a person says that indicates a desire, ability, reason, or need, or even commitment to change, to changing a behavior that's not, not, not working for them. Um, and ultimately, the goal is to use open-ended questions and then reflections to help people come up with reasons need to change. Yeah. Um, and, and, and specifically, you start with learning about someone's values and their goals and what they want. Because it isn't about like me choosing for you what you're going to go do. And I will say, I've, I've heard like, I once a I had a student, a doc student who hadn't had any MI training yet, but she knew what my research was. She was like walking by my office showing another like undergrad around and she's like oh that's dr straight he researches motivational interviewing that's this technique that you use to motivate people to do things they don't want to do okay and it's like no no that's not that's, like, that's I, I, not I, how it works come back real fast <laughs> yeah 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 it's like let, let, let's start over because ultimately it, it starts with learning about what someone's goals are and what they really value in life and then really helping them really evaluate their own behavior and identify things that they could change that would help them meet their goals. So I guess right off the bat, you know, how do you help these students? Cause let's talk about students, right? How do you help students identify goals? Like what if, I mean, I'm thinking of like some of my fifth graders would be like, I don't know, like to become a YouTube person, right. Or something like right. that. Like, you know, how do you help them like focus in on something very specific without, like you said, making them do something they don't want to do. Right. Well, ultimately, I mean, so you can think about our, our helping conversations and all the ones that we have being on this continuum of following versus directing. Mm -hmm. um, and with motivational interviewing, we are, we're, we are guides, so, sort of like a, um, like a service dog. The service dog doesn't decide to go to the grocery store. The, the owner does, okay. right? But the dog helps them get there the safest way. Um, and, but there's a movement back and forth between following and directing. And so you can start off really open and really following. And I mean, a simple question, what's important to you, right? That's really open. Yeah. You can do, there's activities like the value card sort where they can sort different values and you can learn and ask questions about, I mean, and they, they would sort like values that are important to them, not important somewhat. And then you can ask questions. Why did you choose that? So for example, if the kid says to be a good friend, why is that important to you? And then you build some conversation around there. Um, but ultimately, if you if we were talking about those studies we did, we actually developed like a semi-structured interview. Um, so there were some preset questions. We also had data that the kids would fill out a pre-treatment survey about some of their behaviors and some of the things they thought they should be doing. Like, you know, what were your actual grades? And what do, you, what do you want your grades to be? And we would start with a really simple question, um, which is on a scale of one to 10, how important is it for you to make good grades? Mm -hmm. 10 being very important, one not important at all. And from that number, they would choose. And then we asked them, why'd you choose that number? And, and that's how we start. I mean, that's basically, that's for the most part, how we start other than, like telling them like limits of confidentiality, kind of purpose of, right. of the con conversation. And then we go from there about, you know, what things are you doing now to help you make good grades? Yeah. What things are interfering with that? Um, and, 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 we, and we went and, and we go through it. And with, I will say in that study, we also do some normative comparisons where we actually had some data to show them like, you know, what do kids who make A's, how much do they study? And why, why do you think that helps them make A's and had some, some interesting parts of that semi-structured approach with that said, though, there is a somewhat of a debate in the motivational interviewing world of that. It is very client centered. And so if you are using a semi-structured approach, like I'm describing, 
where we're a little a little more directing. I mean, we're like in that conversation, we're talking about grades. Mm. You know, we, we've directed the conversation where maybe the kid really wants to talk about like work on his relationships. Um, and so there's a debate in the in, in the field about the semi-structured approach where you have preset questions, but then you can move, you know, off of the right. off script and reflect versus just really kind of no structure at all other than implementing the, the skills and, and processes of motivational interviewing. Um, but it gets tricky because for research, you know, we like fidelity. And so we want to rate that and we want some consistency yeah. in, in what we're talking about. So, so I was actually going to bring, I was going to ask that question. So for research purposes, how did you guys have to get over that hurdle, right? Of like, what are we going to do and how is this going to be accepted by the motivational world community? <laughs> so, so, so I have some different, I have a couple of thoughts. Well, in, in, in that one, we used like a, like a checklist, like a self-report checklist of, you know, are you asking the, the questions? Are you doing these activities with, if, if, if you were to have a bunch of grant funding, you can actually like audit audio record, Right. And there is an actual like coding system that's been developed called like the, there's actually a couple, but probably one of the most common ones is the motivational interviewing treatment integrity um, system. And that is, is, is a behavioral coding system where you can actually code the therapist or the provider's um, use of MI consistent skills and, and motivationally interviewing inconsistent skills. You can also code the, the student or client's um, behavior in the, in the session for change talk and the opposite of change talk, which is, which is sustained talk. Um, so that's like kind of the highest level, but it takes some funding because you have to A, be able to audio record and then code a bunch yeah. of information. So um, with the self-reported checklist, that's acceptable, but I will say we found positive effects so there is, I will sadly, and maybe, and maybe you don't want this on the task, but there's a political side of it. So if there is a reviewer who likes MI and I'm saying, look, we did MI, here's what we did. And look, it worked. They're going to be more like, okay, we, yeah. you know, like you, you measured fidelity, but it could be better listed as a limitation. Right. Don't find significant effects. And there's always that potential of someone being like, well, you did an audio record. You like, how do you know? Which we, I mean, that's, a, it's a limitation anyway. Right. And so, you know, I think we kind of were lucky in the sense that with that first study that it worked. So that made it more publishable without the audio recording and only the self-reported checklist. However, you know, we like you're, you're on a grant right now where we are actually asking for funding that part of that funding would code conversations we're having audio code to really get that higher level more detailed nuanced right um, information of what's going on in the conversation so maybe that was tmi i don't know no no, no. i think that was great i think it's interesting to know and for people that are Baker, what do you think <laughs> i had a couple of questions that i was thinking of um how does cultural considerations play into mi or when, you know, when you're interacting with students and you're trying to learn about their values, I mean, what kind of things should the interviewer keep in mind as it relates to cultural issues? Right. That, that, that's a great question. And part of that, that that's actually the, the, the same proposal that I was kind of mentioning um, that, that Chris is a part of, um, is actually looking at trying to culturally adapt an intervention that uses motivational interviewing along with some other um, intervention components to get some feedback on how, how can we make it more culturally responsive. But I will say in general, the nice thing about motivational interviewing is that focus on values. Um, and so if you're learning about values and then you're adjusting treatment um, and, and the conversation around that person's values, that is really part of a culturally responsive practice it's also a non-instructional approach you know like we're, we're not giving a bunch of information we're not talking at at a person which could be good but in some cultures that might also not be what someone wants because if maybe they come to you and they think you're an expert and they want 
advice. They want specific information. Other cultural backgrounds, people may not want that advice giving. And motivational interviewing really is non-advice. Right? We don't give advice. It is really about listening and using really the Carl Rogers approach other than a little more directive and that we're a little more strategic maybe about questions we ask and the information we reflect back to um, the person. But doing the value card sort, just what I, what I mentioned, like, and you can find that you could Google value card sort and you will see printouts of cards that you can cut up that have a bunch of different values that we, and, and again, like being a good friend, being respected by peers, colleagues, and, and you can have like a wild card where kids can write in their own values if it's not in, in the deck. And I would say starting out with that, which wasn't a part of our RCT, but it is part of one of our mentoring interventions um, that has had maybe even more or stronger findings and effects on grades and other behaviors. We start with that. That's the first thing we do in the relationship is this value card sort to learn about what is really important to the kid that's sitting across from us. Because we assume we know, you know, we were in middle school, we assume we know, but we don't. I mean, we don't. And especially when you consider the differences in backgrounds and experiences people, people go through, uh, we can't go in there with assumptions. Um, and I love the value card sort for that. And in fact, I do like a even, I even do like a weird sort of version of that in classes to get to know like students that I'm working with, because I want to know what do they value? Yeah. What's important to them? That's what we need to do instead of rapid naming at the end. We need to value cards. <laughs> we, we could. Y'all want to do, I, I, I can pull up a, a, a value list and y'all could choose it. your top three and we could talk. That's awesome. Or yeah, we, we can do we it. I'm no problem. For the next guest. Yes, that's so good. I, um, I mean, real quick. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. But yeah, I think that's really interesting to do because when I was on your episode, I gave you guys rapid naming questions, right? When I came on oh, your yeah, podcast. That, that is true. So that it's is a way true. to kind of flip it back on us. I like where your head's at, Gil. Sorry, Jen, I didn't mean to hijack that. <laughs> no, no, I would just, from everything you were saying too, did you find any significance um, in interviewing students with disabilities or students with maybe like social communication disorders? So, so we, we have not um, examined that, like using it with, with that group yet. And I actually, I, I actually want to say, actually, I, I, I know this in, in our original study, there was, and I have to go back into my dissertation where we like mentioned this. I know there was at least one student who was in the treatment group who, who had ID mm-hmm. and the student was unable to to really engage in the conversation. Now, oh, that, but that was a very kind of severe level. And so that, that student was, I mean, dropped because, and we, and we made that kind of criterion um, there. But what we're interested really is thinking, we want to see it more in that tier two role. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've used our, our mentoring approach, which is instrumental mentoring, um, which we might talk about later if we have time but which embeds motivational interviewing in it that we've we have used and my colleague uh, dr samuel mcquillan out at the university of south carolina um, he evaluated the, a mentoring program with mi in it with kids who were in alternative schools um, and who were there because they had really big disruptive issues and saw improvements in grades and also self-report self-reported reductions in 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 internalizing problems on the Basque, um, as well as some uh, improvements on attendance and like office referrals, which, and and that, that's more at that tier, if not arguably almost a tier three level, because now they've actually been kicked out of school. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know that's not special ed, but in regards to there being a crisis and a kind of a tertiary need or indicated need, um, for support, but, Kids with ID, we have not really evaluated it with. Autism would be interesting. Teach, actually, teaching kids with autism the client-centered skills um, as a social skill, we actually, you people already kind of do that, like reflective listening and open-ended yeah. questioning. And I mean, there's a whole kind of weird kind of meta world I think you could get yeah. <laughs> with that, of, not, of not actually using MI per se, but teaching some of the 
the MI skills. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what came to mind when I'm thinking and hearing you talk was, was our students on the spectrum that have those social pragmatic difficulties um, that you do have to strike a balance between listening and kind of directing them. Um, so yeah, I, I would be interested to see the effects uh, with that population. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know if this is time to transition into it, but you said instrumental mentoring. Right. What, <laughs> what is that? Oh yeah. Well, let, let me add one more thing. That, yeah, to, go for to it. Jen's question. So when I mentioned using it with parents, just in case there are other MI people, experts listening, they probably get mad at me for not mentioning this. So with using it with parents, it was originally was like one intervention was called the family checkup. Okay. Um, and, and that was developed for parents with kids who had developmental disabilities to, to use awesome. with, with their parenting strategies. So that indirect route has definitely been used. Now the, with adolescent kids with autism, we haven't really evaluated like how they would participate in mm -hmm. an MI um, session. But really cool. It would be cool to do that. Actually, I'm where it's going. Let's okay. do it. Now, now, Chris, I'm sorry that I like, went back, but I felt like I needed to make that. No, 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 because now yeah, you, I know that's helpful. You made me go back to a question I had earlier that we went off on how to do it with an individual. But so the group, the group mm -hmm. motivational interviewing. So yes. beginning of the year on my campuses, well, this this past year and just going forward, I usually do a QA and a at the beginning with the campus like, all right, I'm not going to present because I don't know what you don't know. So let's ask questions. Let's kind of have a conversation. I do it with all my campuses. But let's say, Gil, I wanted to do this instead. How would I approach it from like talking to a group of teachers? Because you well, said it's, it can be done with parents and teachers, right? Consultations. Yeah, like yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking about I'm, th I'm thinking about the group. Yeah. And I would say, I would again. You got to start with value based questions. And if you wanted to, there's a semi-structured approach called the classroom checkup, which is a really, it's a whole consultation model that incorporates motivational interviewing. There's a great book from uh, Wendy Ranke or, um, and her colleagues that really lays out that whole approach. But the first question they ask um, a teacher is, why did you become a teacher? That why did you choose question. this profession? Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, it's a question that we ask, uh, you know, we ask in interviews. And if y'all think back to when y'all been interviewed for jobs or graduate school, probably one of the times you felt most motivated and pumped up was around those times when you were answering those questions or thinking about them too, like going, because you know, they're going to ask, well, why do you want this job? Yeah. And, and, and you come up with those responses, but then you get in a profession and you've been doing it for a few years and you've don't think about those reasons. Yeah. Um, you're, you're so embedded. So, I mean, almost in, in a, in a group forum, you could do that of ask a couple, a couple people and you get, you get different responses in the group dynamic though. You got to be able to connect the themes as well. Um, and, and connect across, across different responses. Um, you can do a group values card like sort also where you just kind of on a PowerPoint have the values listed and have them pick their top three. I do a lot of pairing shares where I have people like get in pairs and talk about it and kind of report back. That's like the classroom, like a big group right. um, as well. And so if you wanted to do that, I would say that's where you would start. But that, that's where you start. That's the that's just learning about values and getting people helping people remember why why they do what they do um and then i think the motivating part then later comes on because you first and really the processes you engage you first learn about values and kind of overall goals but then in in, in true motivational interviewing you're going to focus the conversation on problem areas or things that are kind of interfering or not aligned with those values or goals and can, here, can I give you a real example? I know oh, I'm rambling. See, see, I'm this, it's a preferred topic, so I can monologue. <laughs> but this is okay. We're good. Uh, you you know. got me monologuing. Does anybody know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I told this story. The first the, the reason I might even be here right now is when I got out of undergrad, I was gonna take a year off and go to St. Croix with my buddy, Daryl Hannah. His name is Daryl Hannah. So anybody who knows the actress from the 80s. <laughs> 
there's a guy named Daryl Hannah who lives in St. Croix. Um, still. Slash, slash, does she know, does he know Tom Hanks? Uma Thurman from Killville. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but yeah, so, um, so me and me and Daryl Hannah, we were going to go to, uh, we were going to go to St. Croix in our kind of the year after undergrad. And, but I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted something with psychology. Um, and I was told I needed to talk to this guy named Dr. Brad Smith. He was at the University of South Carolina. He's now at UH, um, University of Houston. Um, and I kind of randomly came across him in an elevator. An ele- it's an elevator story, Jen, uh-huh. bring, bringing, it, bringing it back around. And for some circle, full circle. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't get stuck, but for some reason, I like it knew it was him. I don't know how I'd never seen him before. And I was like, are you Dr. Smith? And he was like, I am. And I was like, I'm supposed to talk to you. Like another professor had recommended it. And he's like, come talk to me and went down to his office. And he asked me what I want to do. I told him I want to go to grad school. Right. And kind of asked me why I was like, you know, I'm, I want to help people. I'm not really sure. And he's like, well, what, what are you going to do this year? And I was like, well, in about a month, I'm going to go to St. Croix and I'm going to go be a bartender for a year yeah. <laughs> and then take a year off. And he's like, Oh, well, that, that sounds cool. And he was like, how's that going to, he's like, and he's like, how's that going to help you get into graduate school? And I was like, well, uh, you know, that elevator. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I don't know. I was like, there's the university of Virgin islands. Maybe I'll get in the lab out there. And like, I mean, it was, it was a really shaky response that I had. I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, um, how would working in my after school program that provides uh, treatment to kids with ADHD help you get into graduate school? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this was not a paid position either, which he made clear up front, he was <laughs> like, you know, how, how would volunteering in, in this? And I was like, well, yeah, I'd get experience. And I started listing all these reasons why it would help me. And he kind of asked me, why wouldn't the St. Croix experience help me? And then he ended with this, which was actually, slightly not in like slightly not in my in regards to it's not an open-ended question but in regards to this old idea of building a discrepancy between your goals and your actual behavior he said would you rather go to St. Croix now and wait on people as the bartender or would you rather go like for me for a year get into graduate school and then when you're done with graduate school you can go to St. Croix and you can like pay the bartender to make you drinks and, and, and I was like, touche, touche. So I worked for him for free for a year. Was, well done, year. Dr. Smith. Yep. And, and then later I found out about motivational interviewing from him. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and so it worked and it started with him. Just learn what, what did I really want to do? Yeah. And I went to St. Croix. I will say I went to St. Croix, but only for like a week. And my buddy is still there. Oh, Daryl's still there. Daryl's still there. He's, uh, he's been, he's, uh, he is there. He was a chef for a while. Then he opened a surf shop. <laughs> he sold the surf shop. Now I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing now. I need to catch back up with him. <laughs> I think it's a good way to book in that and kind of move into instrumental mentoring, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Last time you asked, I like kind of no. went. Well, back. no, because you triggered a question for me, so I had to go back and ask that question too. So, what is instrumental mentoring? Um. Well. To take one step back, all of this relates because of treatment and accessibility. Like the reason I study motivational interviewing is because a there's a shortage of school psychologists. School psychologists don't have a ton of, ton of time, and so the idea that you know a one hour, a one session type of intervention could help kids—that's something maybe a school psychologist could potentially fit into their really busy schedules. Maybe <laughs> that was like the the original draw. Um, and as you all know, there's a shortage of school of, of really school mental health providers. Um, and, and upwards are a couple, there's a couple of estimates of anywhere between 55% and 75% of kids in need of mental health treatments are unable to access those treatments because we don't have enough providers and the misalignment of interventions um, with values, needs, and um, language of my minoritized groups in under-resourced communities, um, which are, that's kind of in, interrelated. Um, and so what instrumental mentoring does to try to address this is it's really a, what we would call like a task diffusion model. Um, 
And task diffusion is when you take tasks that are typically done by professionals, like licensed folks, like our LSSPs, um, even our, our social workers or counselors, and you provide support and supervision, typically from the licensed people, but they, they, they then provide like a downward supervision to non-professionals, people who do not have that, 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 that licensure. Um, to provide some some level of, of, of the task in, in our case the mental a mental health intervention or service right um, we see that the, the World Health Organization um, is, is, um, is a proponent of task diffusion for certain for certain communities where resources are low for certain just the delivery of certain health services and Interestingly, there is about 40 years of research showing that when non-professionals have the appropriate supervision and training, that they can provide psychotherapeutic interventions with the same efficacy as licensed folks. All right. <laughs> Again, supervision and training is there. Yeah. And so with our instrumental mentoring model, the aim is to have the, the big picture, which where a lot of research needs to be done, um, is to have folks like our LSSPs be able to supervise and train paraprofessionals and volunteer youth mentors. Okay. And, and then those paraprofessionals and volunteer youth mentors then provide basically evidence-based interventions to kids, specifically tier two level kids. We went at tier three, that would still be our professional folks, but tier one, tier two. And actually, if you look back to like Fuchs and Fuchs and Dino, like the people who pushed RTI, buried oftentimes in their like future, like what does the future look like? Or when they're just proposing RTI, and the shifting and the changing of the school psychologist role, one of it, one of the main us training paraprofessionals in evidence-based interventions. And so that's at the heart of instrumental mentoring. Now, why do we call it instrumental mentoring? I don't know if that was your next question. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, actually, I actually had a comment kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. I've noticed, I mean, through my career, it's limited compared you know, to you guys's, but Behavior RTI tends to be the thing that nobody really quite knows what to do, mm -hmm. right? Academic RTI is like, oh, that's super easy. I know exactly what to do in tier one, tier two, tier three. I have no right. nothing. I've never been a teacher or anything like that. I know what to do in academic RTI. But behavior right. RTI is always like, what do we do next? I don't, and this is conversations that I'm walking in on. They're like, well, he's been in tier one RTI. And I was like, all right, so what does that look like? They're like, um, well, you know, he had a behavior chart. And I'm like, all right, so what, are, what was the next step we did? And they're like, uh, we didn't, we didn't really do anything else. And, right. you know, so it's Head hard, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> but behavior is so individualistic, right? So like, what are we going to do for Gil? That's different for Chris than for Jen. And this seems like a great way to come in and kind of just help with that type of stuff. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, that's kind of what I'm hearing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, if we, if we get into the details of the model, it is really about tailoring interventions to a kid's needs. Mm. Um, and, 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 and their goals. And so we, we frame it as mentoring because it is, it, it is like traditionally, if, if, if I say like youth mentoring, what do y'all think of? Uh, like big brother, big sister. Yeah. Big yeah. brother, big sister. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wait, 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 say that again, Jen. Communities, Communities and schools. And schools. Communities and schools. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the Boys and Girls Club of Boys America. And Club, yeah. And, and, yep. and, and, and basically that idea that you pair an adult with a kid and they form a positive, long, enduring relationship. And then that buffers negative outcomes. Um, that, that's the traditional mentoring model known as the developmental mentoring model. And that's like a one size sort of fits all approach, sort of like Chris, what you're saying, like the, like sort of, that's almost akin to the behavior chart. Like we did a behavior chart. Isn't that enough? Yeah. You know, we, we, we should go to kid, referral now next. Right. You're like, what? Right, we should go to a referral. <laughs> right. We, we, we gave this kid a mentor. Yeah. You know, he, he sees his mentor, but the mentor doesn't have any 
training other than building this relationship. Um, and about a decade ago, a couple of um, large scale randomized control trials came out showing that school-based youth mentoring really had inconsistent effects on academic outcomes and sometimes negative effects. And one of the reasons that was hypothesized and actually Dr. Michael Karcher, who's at UTSA, which- Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) brilliant guy. And this is actually a crux of a lot of where the instrumental mentoring um, work came from, where the need came from, is that he found that school-based mentoring programs the, the relationship between the, the student and the mentor was typically less than six months. Um, whereas a community-based mentoring program, which is just done out in the community, not with not really tied to the school, those relationships were typically longer than six months. And the community-based programs had more consistent effects on mental health outcomes. And so that right there was kind of a clue that, hey, well, we're not, if the theory, if the theory is that kids need this long and enduring relationship, not just positive, but long and enduring, that in schools, we're not meeting the theory. It's not long, it's not enduring. So what we've kind of pushed with this instrumental model is that we need other theories in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and basically, we need to equip mentors, these volunteer youth mentors, with skills and resources that would allow them to implement evidence-based practices and be able to tailor those practices to a kid's needs. And this is where our model comes in, which, I mean, really, we have like manual, we have manuals on this where we start with motivational interviewing, we learn about a kid's values. We help the kid learn, set goals related to their values. They learn an organizational technique based on the homework organization planning skills intervention, HOPS, which is a evidence-based intervention for kids with ADHD. They get this organizational kind of training. And then after that, we have a bunch of modules that are based on evidence-based practices or behavioral kernels. Um, which are really just taken from a bunch of different interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you think of cognitive behavioral therapy, you can think of techniques that fall in there. Um, Cognitive restructuring, all right? Identifying like negative maladaptive thoughts that we have like a module that would, that teaches that concept and that idea to kids. There's also like using relaxation techniques, diaphragmatic breathing, mindfulness, um, there are study skills interventions, like how to use flashcards. So, so we have all these different modules or sessions that after you've set goals and you know what the kid's goal is, you can then choose these skill-based modules, the mentor can, that are semi-structured, and then they can then teach them a skill that will help them achieve their goal. Right. In addition, they get that positive adult relationship. It's just not long and enduring. Right. Because we know in schools, schools are nine months. Yeah. It is. <laughs> and, and so basically you just described your grant, correct? I mean, the, the study. A, 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 big, a big chunk of it, a yeah. big part of it, because we, we are aiming, the grant aims to do a couple other things with like our pre-existing model. One is to actually have someone like, like you, Chris, go actually where we train Chris in the model, and then he would oversee the the paraprofessionals are volunteers. Yeah. And ultimately we think volunteers are paraprofessionals. There's about 12 paraprofessionals for every one school psychologist. So, you know, we have a shortage <laughs> and, and our, I was doing the numbers before I got here to address the shortage problem, just by getting more school psychologists, we would have to double the workforce. Whew. Isn't that we crazy? Had to double it. We had to double it. I don't even know if our universities can handle it. I mean, <laughs> like the, remember yeah, how the many capacity. people you accepted this year? Double that so that we can double that. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Double that. And then also provide the quality training that has to go on mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. And, and so not to be like a Debbie Downer, A, I think we should continue recruitment. So no one <laughs> take me out, uh, like don't, don't take me out back of the shed and be yeah. like, you're you done. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but ultimately we will likely never have the perfect ratio. Um, of providers and ultimately we need to think about how can we change the system to make it more accessible and this is kind of one 
one approach and we call it instrumental mentoring, but we're really talking about diffusing these tasks, but then providing some really structured supervision and training to these mentors that, you know, and we call them mentors other than a mental health provider. Right. Do you see any drawbacks to motivational interviewing? Um, well, I mean, it's not, it's not a silver bullet. If someone's already motivated, you don't need to use it. That's true. And, That's fair. <laughs> you know? Well, I was just trying to think about both. I mean, of anything, there's always going to be something, right? Like it's not going to work for everybody. It's not a one size fits all for everybody, but I guess that's true. If they're highly motivated, you're just talking to them and <laughs> like, right. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, if they're high, yeah. I mean, if there are high, highly motivated, you're kind of like, keep doing, keep doing what you're yeah. doing. What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, I think MI takes a lot too. If you're only going to use it without anything else, um, like without any other company intervention, like our mentoring has other aspects of it. It's not just MI. If you're just going to use a motivational interview, you really have to have some high level training. We have some data to support that too. I mean, we've had undergrads try to use it and just, just without any other interventions, they got some training and they went out and we didn't really see the effects we saw when graduate level people um, would implement it. Now that's one study. Right. Um, but we know when we do our mentoring programs, undergrads can get the basic idea of some of the MI skills, but then they have all of these other evidence-based components that really beef it up. So even if they're not the most skillful interviewer um, per se, or reflective listener, yeah, they have these other kind of components there. Makes sense. Jen, do you have a question? Oh, I was going to ask you. So if they're motivated, what happens if you're highly motivated, but you have performance deficits or a skill deficit? Is that something that, I mean, you could be highly motivated, but not be able to right. initiate the specific skills needed to perform that task? Yes, that, that is an excellent point. And that is where that meant the instrumental mentoring model really gotcha. comes in. Cause I think that's the downside of that. Like in early on, when I was saying we did that one study where we had that one, like one session and we saw improvements in grades, that is great. But if a kid lacks the skill, you can motivate them that they're not going to be able to change. And that was one of, that's one of our hypotheses of why maybe the ones where we've tried undergrads implementing one session of MI where we think maybe some of the fall off in it is, is when you create a plan with the kid, like maybe a graduate level person or someone with a license knows kind of like, this is a good plan that would maybe help you mm -hmm. improve grades. Maybe not. We're actually kind of trying to figure that out, but the mentoring model does some of the motivational pieces, but then actually does that skill-based instruction and, 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 and embeds MI throughout that to motivate people to use the skills but it has that skill piece in it. And I think that is huge and such an important point. Yeah. Um, Cause I think essentially like you could have the opposite effect if you're highly motivated and I like the skills to perform specific tasks that I envision myself doing, it would actually go, it would unmotivate me to continue doing it if I continue to fail at it. You yeah. know, like that kid that wants to be a baseball player but they were never taught the skills in which yeah. to be a baseball player. And then every time I do it, I'm not very good. People laugh at me. So mm -hmm. my, my motivation actually goes down. So I love right. that. Yeah, like 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 a, like basically demotivational interviewing. Or we get them motivated like in that one session. They're like, I'm going to go study for an hour. Yeah. I'm going to do all my math homework today. And then they go try to do their math homework. And it's so... When they put the letters with the numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why are there letters? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's such a, that's such a great point. And that, I mean, that is where that mentoring model comes in because you can, you can teach skills um, to kids. So, yeah. and that's, I will say there's research on that, even like, you know, like check and connect is kind of similar, like, you know, but it, some research has shown that, that's really mainly only effective if the reason the kid's behavior is being maintained mm -hmm. is because of, of attention and yep. they get that attention. But if it's other things like lack of skill to do, to do whatever, then the check and connect doesn't always work. Now, I think there's some different versions of check and connect. So it might, people might get feisty about that too. I don't know. <laughs> the behavior is still yeah. Hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a quick question before we are getting towards the end here, and I, but I do have another question that's relevant to all this. So you and our, we'll call it our pyramid plan. It's not a pyramid scheme, right? Because right. it is a tough, right? But you are supervisor supreme. So how are you teaching people like me how to do all this stuff? All right. Well, 
that's why we have we we have some proposals out there mm-hmm. to actually evaluate like try to develop the processes to do that because right. currently all of our research has been done where either I or like Dr. Sam McQuillan at South Carolina, even Dr. Brad Smith at UH, there's also Mike Lyons does some of this, um, who's at UVA, but all these are school psych people. Um, Typically we will train like undergrad mentors and they will go out and and they are representative of like paraprofessionals. They don't have, they don't have graduate degrees yet, or they haven't had any graduate training. They're a little different than though, what might be the local group. And they also, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor. So I can kind of do it within like a class paradigm. What we need to be able to fit is like, like, like with you, Chris, if you're out at the school, you have caseloads, probably really high caseloads, lots of assessment cases. And basically we want to try to get it to a simple request of let us have like basically two, two hours of Chris's time and help us help have a school be able to either find volunteers or reallocate some paraprofessionals again for about two hours yeah. a week to do to do this work and we actually use a group mentoring model so just i mean say we have chris right as a, a supervisor we train him in our model and then he does he trains five volunteers or paraprofessionals and those five people if we have them for two hours and they can each see two groups of four students so four times five in one hour you're already going to help 20 kids yeah in two hours if you can do two groups you're going to help 40 kids you're going to give evidence-based treatment to 40 kids that otherwise might not get that Mm -hmm. that level of support that's great so i mean that i mean that's the idea but ultimately we gotta we gotta we got to get feedback from providers. We got to get feedback from students, from communities, because we want to serve under under resourced communities, and those are those um, communities are often really um, there's oftentimes really historically minoritized, marginalized groups in there. And so, you know, we've built this from a Eurocentric viewpoint. Just a lot of the people who have been involved, and that's a similar thing with a lot of our current interventions and so we need feedback because as you i don't know if this is on the recording but you were mentioning you have a publication on treatment acceptability yeah and that if it's not acceptable to the providers or to the the people you're trying to serve guess what it could be the best thing since sliced bread is not going to work right because people aren't going to implement it yeah so that's where that's where we're at so we need to get things going is what you're saying. Yeah, we need to get funding to pay to pay participants and schools and providers to try the model out, give us feedback on how to make it more acceptable and work within within a, an actual school system on, on, on the ground floors and then align it with with, I think, unique needs of based on cultural backgrounds and things um, to make sure that all voices are being heard and that we can adapt it for for different communities as needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are getting towards the end of this episode, but I want to make sure there's nothing else we haven't, is there anything we haven't touched on? Do you want to make sure? And Gil, you can talk about whatever at this point, but anything that's relevant that you may want to touch about, talk about? Um, other, I mean, I, I think we probably, I, I think I've probably rambled enough. I mean, I really, this is like a preferred topic topic. So yeah. I know I like, I like go into lecture mode on it, um, which is what Julia would say. I yeah. mean, my professor voice. Yeah, well, I talk more than the one that she's on, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a different type of episode, right? So this is right. something that you you have a passion about. I can hear it in your voice. And I, I usually take notes during these things and it's all on my phone, but I have six pages of like notes and things that you've said of like, oh, oh, wow. Let me check out hops, right? I've never heard of hops before, but something like as um, simple as hop, that, hop, like hop, hops is good stuff for kids with ADHD. Yeah. Middle school kids and up. Yeah. So I'm like looking at, I'm notes 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 of plenty so i have learned a lot today uh but as you know gil we always like to finish each episode with rapid questions um these are always tailored towards you uh, or anybody who's on the episode and jen has done great this year and that she does make the questions as we go through the episode instead of me just supplanting them in there and then just having fun with it so um jen go for it all right first one what is your favorite hobby 
uh, guitar. Ooh, guitar. Ch ch trying to sing too, but I'm not. I'm not a good singer. At okay, all. I've heard with the guitar. Yeah, but I've heard you're very good at guitar, and I mean that not in jest, like legitly. Yeah. People have told me I, very good. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> I, I've gone down though. Kids have made my guitar oh. playing. Like I've, I've, you know, I've passed, passed the peak. Yeah. Maybe maybe it'll maybe it'll be bi bimodal when they get older. So. Enough for enough for a good jam session. Right. Uh, yes, I can definitely impro improvise. So. Wait. Um, how long does it take you to get ready? Does that include getting the kids ready or just myself? Just yourself. <laughs> uh, we don't include that variable in these types of questions. <laughs> yeah, probably most days like 20, 30 minutes. Nice. Okay, that's pretty yeah. quick. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? I, I'm scared to answer that question because I don't <laughs> want to jinx myself. I knock on wood. I think I'm decent. Should we bring Julia in here to answer that question for us? <laughs> uh, no. Maybe, maybe that might, that might we, we might get in a debate over who's the better driver. Maybe not. She might agree. That... I thought you were going to ask if kids are, were in the car or not. No, that's, that's true. Yeah, if, ki if, if kids are, in, if kids are in the car, depending on what they're doing, I mean, I'm trying to be super careful when they're in the car, but yeah. they will scream and throw stuff at me and yeah. I have, my, my big thing right now is I have to answer the same question a thousand times wherever we're going it's so it's yeah. like today it was daddy is mommy at work and i'm like yeah she's at work is mommy at work yeah daddy's at yeah mommy's at work <laughs> Where, where's mom yeah where's mom? <laughs> at work <laughs> okay well uh what is your most prized possession material you can't say like your family or your wife or your kids yeah well they're, they're not possessions so. <laughs> that's uh, fair. oh that's fair. a good answer well done right. so um <laughs> pr probably uh, pr as of right now it's probably this like fender stratocaster that mm -hmm. i got it's a, it's a, a mexican made one which is like the the lower end but um, I got it at an auction, a, a silent auction for the Santa, Santa Fe Memorial, because I don't know if y'all, there was a sh school shooting at Santa Fe ISD um, a few years ago, it impacted one, one of our, one of our fellow school psychologists. Um, she, she lost her daughter and, and uh, so we do some stuff and a year ago, I bought that at the auction and I've played it a lot. Good. a whole lot it's like the main guitar now so probably that one oh nice. the main squeeze yeah and then and then it gets in my my father-in-law yeah. gifted me he, that's what i probably should have maybe said that one first, but. <laughs> what oh, color is your yeah. fender is out of curiosity it's it's like it's actually like a light it's kind of like light blue thing which like if it wasn't at the like if i would have gone in a guitar store like i probably would have gotten like a tobacco sunburst looking <laughs> thing but i i like it like i mean i just I love it. I put new strings on it after I got it and that's awesome, not man. stopped playing. I was like, why did I, why haven't I had a Stratocaster longer? That's awesome. <laughs> um, invisibility or super strength? Ooh. I think I'll go with invisibility. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's uh, fly. Yeah. <laughs> it's what? It's, it's sly. sly. And, yeah, it's you, sly. you can evade somebody with super strength, too. It's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, what's one thing still on your bucket list? Oh. Get, getting federal grant funding yeah. with, with, with Chris. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's and, and anyone else who wants to, who wants to join. Yeah. So. I don't know. The feds are on to Chris. So oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah. your chances. So, so that was, so maybe we'll put out some good, some good vibes there. Yeah. 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 Um, whose opinion do you care about the most? Uh, Julia's. Good Smart. call. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what is the strangest food combination that you enjoy? Um, as, as a kid, <laughs> I uh, was, I mean, I didn't know, I actually didn't know you would put milk in cereal because I always put apple juice in cereal because oh, my brother yeah. was allergic to milk. <laughs> My mom oh. then told me I was allergic to milk. And my brother <laughs> had allergic. like, yeah, my brother had figured out that if you dump apple juice in it, it tastes good. And actually, I know y'all are all saying it's gross, but cinnamon toast crunch. Fair. 
with <laughs> apple juice is actually pretty good. As an adult, though, I put milk in my cereal. All right. So wait, so your mom told you that you were allergic, but you weren't? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I am. Like, I've actually had <laughs> a recent allergy. She didn't want to pay for the milk. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, well, I say I wasn't. I got allergy shots, though, when I was younger. So I've had an allergy test recently, and I was negative for allergies across foods and other things. So I don't know if the allergy shots worked or what. And I don't know that my mom, ever, I don't know if I ever had the lactose. I think that was like a, you know, like a, when you're a baby and my mom's trying to figure out what to do with what was going on. With yeah. Me. Yeah. It's also could have been like this way. We don't have any fights about Gil gets milk. The other one doesn't. You're Yay. both allergic to milk. Yeah. Problem solved. And maybe, and, and maybe I grew out of it. I mean, that's also, I think that's the thing. I yeah. think you can grow out of some allergies, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. All right, last one. Where is the coolest place you have visited? Um, probably, you know, probably Telluride. Um, wow. Was, was really cool. I've been to St. Croix too, but probably Telluride was really cool. And then from there, we went to Red Rocks Amphitheater. So as a musician That's person, cool. that is really, really great place to see music. That's really so. cool. That's cool. Well, Gil, yeah. we've had you on two times this season. Both times have been phenomenal. <laughs> this has been well. well thank, thank you all for having me. It's it's an honor and a privilege, and just fun to talk to y'all. No, and and this is good. I think a lot of our listeners would love to know more about this subject. Um, you are a wealth of knowledge about it. But any any quick recommendations if they want to learn more about things besides just blasting you with emails? <laughs> um, it, if you want to learn more about that specific intervention that we did in the, the randomized trial, the, the one session of motivational interviewing, you can actually access it, that oh. the, the manual it's called the student checkup. And if you go to the uh, studentcheckup.org, you can, that you can go to that website and download the manual for free. Awesome. Um, and you can also get, I think some links to some other like interesting pages um, there's also a web a website. I don't uh, run it, but it, it's called mi for schools dot com, I think, which is a great, great resource. Um, and the psychologist podcast. We don't have any we don't have any episodes yet on mi, but I think I'm actually going to have a, We're going to have a student of mine come on and ask me some stuff about that'd it. Good. Or, so that'd be good. Um, <laughs> Yep. So yeah, Plenty check it out. Yeah. And I want to thank Jen. I want to thank Gil. I want to thank all of our listeners. I know you have a lot of stuff you can do with your time. So I thank you for listening to us. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram at TXASP. Find Gil, listen to his podcast that he does with his wife, Julia Strait. We've had them on the RNR season already. They are phenomenal. They are great. And for all of our listeners, make good choices. <laughs>